We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hello and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Mike Slatman. I've got 45 years of expert fire investigations and I am a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. This is Donna Ingram and I am also a past uh, director of the IAAI and almost 30 years of fraud and fire experience. Welcome. Welcome. And today we've got a really good topic uh, about wildland fires. And um, it's really important to us uh, both in, in uh, well, you know, you're always uh, familiar with the forest fires that happened in, in California and all the loss there. And in the Midwest and in, in Texas and uh, in Oklahoma and Kansas here in Kansas, um, it is very important that people understand uh, how to be safe. Uh, and not cause these fires because in Kansas this year, they um, wildland fires have, have uh, uh, devoured more than 651,000 acres, more than a thousand square miles of um, of, 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 of farmland, and uh, and killed thousands of uh, livestock and uh, 40 homes, and and also caused fatalities. And I've read uh, with NFPA. You have over 334,000 brush, grass, and forest fires that just the fire department responds to. So we have so we have two really good guests uh, to talk to us about wildland fires. One is uh, Doug Allen, a retired division chief with 32 years of service at the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, and uh, he's been a, 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 a He's been a, specializes in analyzing pro, and profiling serial arsonists when it comes to, to wildland fires. And he also was retained as a consultant and advisor to the Riverside County District Attorney's Office. He is, um, he's with us. And Tom Fee, a past president of the International Association of Arson Investigators and a leader in, in the California Conference of uh, Arson in, uh, Investigators um, and in their training and experience in wildland fires will also be with us in a few minutes, but let's start with Doug. Hello, Doug. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Okay, thanks, and uh, thank you for being with us. And and uh, we wanted to talk to you about um, a lot of people do not understand wildland fires, how they start, how they're investigated, and... Um, and what's the difference is between wildland and structural fires? So let's start with what, how, how do, how do wildland fires generally start, Doug? Well, it's. Uh, I'm going to give you some just basic rules that fire investigators uh, need to follow when they're trying to find uh, where a wildland fire started and ultimately what caused the fire. The uh, the engine companies or the fire investigator assigned to it uh, begins by walking the perimeter of the fire. Uh, talking to the first-in firefighters, finding out where the fire was when they arrived. And then as he walks the perimeter, he's reading what we call burn indicators that give him a, a clue as to what direction the fire was moving, what direction the wind was blowing. And once he determines the uh, progression of the fire, uh, the investigator then begins a serpentine movement across the fire from flank to flank, working back and forth, uh, following the burn indicators of fire progression, in other words, movement of fire forward. As he reads these indicators, he uh, he will start to identify where the fire backed against the wind or backed downhill, and they're totally different burn indicators. Once he sees that separation on the ground of forward movement of the fire and backward movement of the fire, he's at the uh, specific area of origin, typically. Um, this is when he uh, is going to end up on his hands and knees down on the ground looking at very small burn indicators, uh, smaller than a dime, uh, the size of acorns, and uh, quite often with a magnifying glass, trying to determine which side of the object 
was affected by the fire first. One side may be blackened, the other side may be white ash, and he can tell from those what direction the fire moved. Often on high-profile fires, we have to grid the specific origin using stakes and twine and grid it off into two-by-three-foot or three-by-three-foot squares. And uh, the investigator will go through these squares. Usually it will take a team of three persons. Um, he'll read the burn indicators in a square, identify the number of the square, and, and provide that to the scribe, the person who's with him taking notes. And they'll enter, that person will enter the burn indicators either as an arrow of direction of fire uh, or some other indicator he may use. The uh, third person in this uh, team will then go into each square and start moving objects, picking them up, looking under them, reading burn indicators that are left behind after you remove an object, such as a discarded board or a beer can or a bottle. They'll have burn indicators on themselves, as well as there'll be indicators underneath the objects that tell him what direction the fire moved at that particular point. Um, he goes around through this uh, grid area till he finds one area that he believes is a point of origin where the heat source and the wildland fuel came together and a fire ignites. Um, if, if there's something there, he'll collect that as evidence, such as a, uh, a burn match or a uh, incendiary device, whatever it may be, that'll become evidence. All of these items that he's observing and uh, the evidence that's there are all documented both by sketching and through photography. <clears throat> and these are all documented for future use and future interpretation. And that's basically how the fire department investigators get to that hopefully point of origin. There are times when the, there is no evidence at that point, such as in an arson fire where someone uses a cigarette lighter ignites the fire, puts the lighter back in the pocket, and drives away. Now we won't find any evidence at the scene. So we still have to go through a process of addressing all of the reasonable wildland fire causes and eliminating those, uh, even if we did find evidence of an arson device. So that's kind of the, the broad spectrum of getting down to that point of origin and investigating the fire might. Right. Uh, well, oh, Doug. Now, as uh, as a as a fire investigator myself, and I've worked many of these, you also have uh, the latest technology too to to help you. Um, we um, use um, here in Kansas. Now, it's it's hard for probably people on the East Coast or are in smaller uh, communities or states or even provinces in other countries to understand how large these fires can get. So we use uh, helicopters. Um, in in many instances, uh, to look at the at the fire spread. Um, now, do you? I know you use them in California, don't you? Sure, we use helicopters to take overhead photographs, the same as you would with a structure fire. Uh, you get a totally different perspective from the air, uh, and uh, photographing and documenting that will give a. Uh, some good clues to the investigator as to the general area where the fire started and how it progressed from there. No, as, as I said in the opening, it's a, a thousand square miles in in uh, in, in Kansas have already uh, burned. Uh, in fact, one county, uh, um, Clark County here, uh, four hundred and sixty-one thousand acres uh, burned, and they have uh, signs saying uh, "fire damage, caution, fire damage ahead," and um, and in that in that area, they have lost thousands of cattle and and other livestock as well as uh, structures. Um, a lot of bloated, uh, burned uh, corpses of uh, animals, and and then they have a lot of orphaned uh, calves and things that have to be taken in. Uh, your your experience, um, your when you when you work these fires, I mean, what can you tell the general public and and fire investigators too? But the general public about what generally, what kind of accidental causes uh, are uh, cause wildland fire? 
Well, one of them would be uh, equipment use. This covers all types of equipment uh, from uh, vehicles that expel carbon, hot carbon particles out the exhaust pipes. They also have uh, catalytic converters that may fail and uh, throw pieces of the catalytic converters out the exhaust pipe that may be as high as uh, 2,000 or more degrees Fahrenheit. Um, any kind of motorized operation, a weed whipper, cutting grass with a steel cord will hit a rock and cause a fire. Um, so just about any kind of mechanical equipment. This comes out of the equipment fire cause. Others are campfires that are abandoned. People believe they, uh, these fires have been extinguished or they don't make any effort at all to extinguish them. And the wind comes up, blows sparks out of the campfire, and, of course, uh, away the fire goes. Children playing with matches, uh, trying to get an experience with, uh, with fire. Um, it's kind of interesting that uh, we all raise our children, our boys, and tell them not to touch the cigarette lighter if we smoke or not to touch the barbecue. And they're told no every time they're around mm-hmm. some kind of heat source. Whereas the girls in the family are in the kitchen quite often helping mom cook dinner and get the experience of the heat and the stove. So there's no curiosity left for the girl in the family, but the boy is constantly being told no, and uh, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe he should be exposed to the barbecue and the heat source on the stove to get that curiosity out of his system. Uh, There's many other, uh, several other fire causes, power lines. Uh, When a power line comes down uh, and ignites the wildland fuels, railroads, uh, if the roadsides aren't cleaned along the railroad track, they can throw hot brakes off uh, off the cars and land in the grass and ignite a fire. Um, so there are uh, several major categories of wildland fire causes, and then within them are subcategories of, of uh, individual items that may cause the fire. Smoking materials, things of that nature. Yeah, smoking. Uh, you know, smoking has kind of gotten a bad rap over the last hundred years, in that it's been blamed for numerous wildland fires when uh, nobody could find anything or the investigators couldn't find the cause. Quite often, smoking is blamed. And uh, but then, after research and study, uh, some twenty so years ago, uh, it was found that there had to be perfect conditions for a cigarette to ignite a fire. Uh, One of those conditions is the relative humidity has to be above 18 to 22 percent, excuse me, below 18 to 22 percent. If it's above that degree of Fahrenheit, then a cigarette won't start a wildland fire. the temperature has to be uh, high enough to support that. The fuel moisture in the dry fuels uh, have to be low enough to support a cigarette causing a fire. And, and actually, in, in the dozens of studies that I've done, uh, even though the dry grass looks like a thick matted field of combustible material, they're actually quite separated. And a cigarette can land between two stems of dry grass and not even char the uh, the grass and cause a fire, but and yes, I'm and glad it's one that of the major named fire causes, but it gets a lot of blame. I'm really glad that you said that because you're exactly right. And they've done a lot of studies like down in Alabama and and, and a lot of um, even with structures and things in that, that nature. And the circumstances do have to be right. You were talking earlier about uh, equipment causing fires and it did it came to my mind about firefighter apparatus and, and their equipment and the differences between fighting a structure fire and a wildland fire. Well, the, the differences in equipment, you mean? Yes. Yeah. The, uh, typically, the wildland fires have to have engines, fire engines that can go off-road, quite often four-wheel drives. And wildland fires, you often have to carry your water to the fire. There's not a readily available fire hydrant that can be hooked up to as in a stationary structure fire. Uh, Wildland firefighters have to typically carry 500 gallons of water on their engines, and then they have to bring in a large 2,500 to 4,000 gallon tankers. And then it's a shuttle process of moving back and forth between the firefighters and the water source, bringing them water. 
the engines are usually lighter than a municipal engine. Uh, but then again, many fire departments have combination engines that are wildly enhanced structure fire trucks. So there's a wide variety of what may be needed. Uh, structure fire departments, of course, have their area ladders and their snorkel fire trucks. Uh, that aren't necessarily uh, available on the Wild Straight Wildland Fire Agency. Yes, and I'll tell you what, I, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, rural counties here um, are equipped. They have brush trucks and things that go off-road, but um, when it uh, when it approaches a metropolitan area, um, you're you're trying to fight uh, uh, wildland or or. or grass cover fires with uh, conventional uh, pumpers. Um, it's been described here in Kansas as uh, carpets of, of fire and um, also, um, you know, like it's moving across the, the pasture. It was just running across the pasture. Now, um, I worked one where it was 300-pound uh, uh, bales of of, um, of uh Hay that had been and uh, and they were attempting to say that uh, smoking caused that, but um, uh, all the conditions, as you mentioned earlier, were not correct for uh, for that. But they were certainly correct for spontaneous combustion. Now, have you worked any wildland fires that were caused by spontaneous combustion of of uh, hay bales or something like that? That would also because this burned out an entire uh, field at a, a feedlot. Uh, and uh, like 176 bales of uh, 300 pound bales of uh, of this hay. Have you worked any of those? Uh, Doug? Yeah, I've had baled hay in stacks uh, that are stored for future use. Uh, they've ignited, and of course, they ignite typically on the interior of the hay bale or that stack of hay bales. I've also had. Uh, uh, unwired stacks of hay, the large hay stacks that are loose, and had them catch fire from spontaneous combustion. Uh, but along with that, we've, we have also experienced a series of arson fires where uh, uh, the suspects were out burning down baled hay that were in barns, and uh, they were, of course, exterior fires that moved into the baled hay stack. So, yeah, I've had a couple of uh, both situations. Well, I, I think that's uh, it's very interesting because people usually don't uh, uh, recognize that as a possibility. Um, and uh, novice fire investigators, uh, in 921, NFPA 921 has a whole, um, now it has a chapter on uh, wildland fires. The two, 2017 edition has just come out, and I don't believe they've made a change to it. I, um, you're the co-chairman of the Wildland Fire Committee for the International Association of Arson Investigators, and um, and so your committee, what do they? How do they help uh, in in uh, in establishing uh, training for fire investigators in wildland fires? Well, we've, uh, as a committee, we've uh, moving toward getting uh, our information on the IAAI webpage that uh, people can talk back and forth and trade information on different types of incendiary devices that maybe they're experiencing in, in their area, their country. Uh, we also monitor legislation here in uh, the states, and as well as uh, we have a member from Australia, and we have a couple members from South Africa uh, to either monitor legislation that's being proposed that affects the fire investigation field or uh, provide information such as the fire laws that we have in California, some other country is interested or some other state is interested, such as the Civil Cost Collection Program, uh, where we will uh, initiate a legal, civil legal action against someone negligently or criminally causing a fire. Uh, there are many areas that don't have a Civil Cost Collection Program that allows a fire department to recoup the money that was tax dollars that were spent suppressing a fire that was negligently or, or criminally started. And uh, there are many areas that, that will inquire about that and how the laws are written and uh, send off information to them uh, to help them maybe go in that direction. That's terrific. I, now, we've been, we've been uh, joined by uh, uh, Tom Fee, 
uh, past president Tom P of the International Association of Arson Investigators. And Tom, I know you've been on the show before, and everybody can see both yours and, and Doug Allen's uh, bio on the uh, post website on Voice America. But uh, thanks for joining us, Tom. Can you hear us? I can. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Now you were a you were a fire chief in Pomona for over 28 years and uh, retired from there. But you've been a private investigator. You, you've got over 40 years of experience in in fire investigations, and you've worked many um, wildland fires. Uh, we've been talking to Doug Allen for for a little while here and talking about different kind of um, accidental causes for for wildland fires and, and how devastating they can be. Um, have you worked any very large um, uh, acreage? Like in Kansas, we lost 600 and I think 50,000 acres here this year so far, 10,000 uh, square miles. Um, have you worked uh, large fires too, Tom, large ones? Yeah, I've worked large fires uh, in, in many of the states, Mike. I, I do quite a few fires in the state of Texas, some here in California, South Dakota, Iowa, all throughout the, the Midwest. Yeah, and, then, and during those uh, examinations, I know I've worked them here in, in Kansas where controlled burns have gotten out of control and, and caused fatalities. Um, I know there was three, um, three uh, ranchers killed down in Texas uh, being caught in a, on a wildland fire where the wind changed direction on him. Have you worked any fatalities uh, in in your in your career in wildland fires? Yeah, unfortunately, fatalities are fairly common in wildfires. Uh, you'll get it both from accidental fires and set fires because. Uh, Usually the spread of those fires are the result of climate issues that are occurring at that same time. And when you've got high winds and fire burning in in forest land or even grassland, uh, there's it's very, very difficult to extinguish those fires. And yeah. it changes direction as the wind changes and unfortunately traps a lot of people. Yes, and in fact, firefighters uh, have themselves have been uh, killed. Um, they call them smoke jumpers, I think. They're, they're called, uh, I had a guy that worked with me that was a smoke jumper, and, and he... Uh, they jump into these fires trying to, to put them out, and uh, and I think the, not too many years ago there were some uh, firefighters killed in uh, in wildland fires. Is that unusual, or is that uh, does that happen regularly? Well, unfortunately, again, it happens regularly, but it's they're trained for those things. So when you consider the amount of acreage that burns compared to the the firefighters that lose their lives, uh, we've got a fairly good track record here in the United States. They're not as fortunate in some other countries. Yeah, so they're heroic. <laughs> yeah, firefighters are they heroic. are. <laughs> you know, we, we lost a series of nine in Arizona not too long ago. And once you get trapped and that wind changes on you, uh, you're you're pretty well left alone out there. I hear I hear you. Now what what we're going to do? And we've been talking to Doug and and uh, and uh, thank you for joining us, Tom. I know you were at a scene and and uh, you needed to get to a good location to talk to us. Um, anyway, uh, what we're going to do when we come back? We're going to um, we're going to ask you guys for uh, a story about a fire that you've worked, and it can be either an incendiary fire or any type of uh, fire where, that you think are interesting. And um, also, we would uh, like to hear um, what you think. Both of you think is the best thing for number one for what? <clears throat> excuse me. What um, the common person can do to help uh, stop uh, these wildland fires, but also uh, anything, any advice that you would give to fire departments um, as far as um, uh, any 
wildland fires, uh, you know, in their investigation or, or whether they should call in the state fire marshal's office or specialists. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go to break and we're going to um, we're we're going to uh, when we come back we'll ask for these interesting stories and uh, we hope that uh, you will come back. See you in a minute. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced, certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. Fireanalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Speaking of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the, the differences with wildfires versus structure fires. And both of you, uh, being in California, have absolutely uh, plenty of experience, unfortunately, in wildfires. And Doug, I wanted to ask you to share a story. Sure. Uh, I could go back to a fire in 2006. It's called the Esperanza Fire. It burned about 43,000 acres and destroyed, uh, I think, 39 homes. And uh, unfortunately, it killed five firefighters. And uh, I was retained by the district attorney's office. It was, the fire was determined to be arson cost. And uh, I was de-retained to conduct an analysis of all the fires in the area and see if they were related to a particular person, a single person, or were there numerous arsonists, uh, because we were looking at uh, some 50 or 60 fires in two counties. And uh, after the analysis and uh, the investigation by the our local sheriff's office and the California Department of Forestry investigators, um, they did identify uh, one person, uh, Raymond Lee Euler, who was charged with some, I believe, 23 or 25 arson fires and uh, almost as many incendiary devices. That's an enhancement-type charge. And... Uh, the five fatalities, five counts of homicide. And uh, as the trial went on, it uh, the, the breaking part of it was uh, the excellent job that the Cal Fire investigators did using uh, remote digital cameras, surveillance cameras, and they picked up the arsonist's car and license plate, and uh, it, it created quite a problem in that it uh, the car had been sold numerous times for cash, and nobody had re-registered it, and nobody could remember the name of the guy that they sold the car to. So it took quite a while to really track that car down. And wow. once it was found, and uh, 
the subject that was in it was found and all the evidence pointed toward him. Uh, interesting in trial was the defense attorney uh, put forth a theory that arsonists want people to know that they set the fire, that it was their job and their, their incendiary device, and they never change devices. They always keep the same device. And I had to take exception to that because there are several well-known nationally serial arsonists who did change their devices because they thought somebody could identify them. And uh, so that was kind of a unique defense from the defense attorney in that trying to blame somebody else because there were numerous type devices used. However, they all included a particular cigarette, a certain type of match, and there was always a match on the filter of the cigarette regardless of the other matches. So there were several items of his method of operation that we could tie back to him as well as uh, DNA on 10 of the cigarettes and tire tracks that matched the car he drove and so on. But it was, uh, he received the death penalty at the time uh, was the only wildland arsonist that killed firefighters that has been sentenced to death in the United States. Uh, at least that's what the uh, prosecutors informed me of. So right. it, was, it, it was quite a notable fire and notable uh, case uh, litigation related to it. Mm -hmm. Is he still awaiting execution? Uh, yeah, he'll uh, he'll probably spend uh, 12 or 15 years through the appeals system <clears throat> before he can be juiced. Okay, um, Tom. Um, I know you're on a cell phone, and uh, and and uh, I was wondering. Uh, you've worked so many fires out there. Uh, you've probably worked fatalities too. Um, what do you have a, a good, uh, nice, interesting story for us? Well, Ben, Doug covered the incendiary <laughs> fire. I'll talk a little bit about an accidental fire I did in Texas. This particular fire burnt uh, across the prairie, across the pastures for 18 miles, burnt two small towns to the ground, and uh, caused some serious injury to people as it was moving uh, across. It burnt for about three days, and one of the individuals that got seriously injured in this was a veterinarian who was trying to move horses out of the way of the approaching fire and she ended up uh, getting kicked by a horse in the head and became a, a paraplegic due to that accident and these this particular fire was the result of a Weather event again, extremely high winds. When you get winds that are blowing up around 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, it relocates uh, all kinds of different things. A lot of them are oftentimes, one of them is the power lines. Mm -hmm. And in this particular case, uh, the power lines were involved in this, in the cause of this fire. You know, it, it, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because I've worked uh, power line fires before. But um, that's the winds. Uh, the winds here in Kansas, we had up to 40 to 60 mile an hour winds, and people don't really realize how quickly the fires move, particularly if there's tall grass. Like we have a lot of tall grass uh, in the in the plains out here that are higher uh, higher as as high as your waist sometimes, uh, and uh, that the vertical um, the, the well the the dried grass burns quickly and and people get trapped uh, in these in these fires. Uh, Tom, you, you is there anything that you can uh, any kind of advice you can give to to people that, uh, this one woman was, uh, it's in, described in a paper, they saw the fire 10 to 15 miles away and thought that it wasn't going to ever come near them. And an hour later, it was at their house. <laughs> so is there anything that you can, any kind of advice you can give to the public uh, should there be a, a, a fire in their immediate area? Yes, that's to listen to the authorities that are in that area. And when they suggest that you evacuate that area, by all means evacuate. 
We have too many people that think that they can stay there and protect their home or buildings on their property, and it just it, it isn't worth it. And when the wind is blowing that hard, you can't put these fires out. These fires, uh, I've always said that, that it has to be a combination of the fire department and, and God that, that takes care of these because the fire department can sneak in and, and extinguish these fires, but only when the climate issues slack up. So if there's one thing that I would say to people when it is suggested that you get out, get out right away. And even though it looks like that fire is a long ways away, it's not unheard of for large forest-type fires to carry embers uh, overhead for 7, 10, 15 miles and then drop them you can end up being trapped between two fires that way. So you you want to you want to evacuate those areas, get to safe ground, and and that means especially when you get up in the mountainous areas, let's get off of that mountain. Don't just go to the other side of it. Uh, get completely away and stay away. You know, I'm glad you brought that up about the flying debris because uh, we're working one here in Overland Park. It's about a $30 million fire here where it, it care, the um, uh, a constru- uh, a, a, an apartment house under construction's uh, burned and uh, and and the irradiant heat and the and the uh, blowing um, debris uh, set fires as much as a an, a um, mile away. And many homes were um, devastated in between. So um, that that's that's a real that's a real concern because uh, the the winds and uh, that changes direction too, uh, doesn't it, Tom? And and that's how some people are also trapped. Yeah, our winds are varying, and they'll change direction all the time. And then you have to also keep in mind that the fire itself creates a draft. And it will uh, sometimes go in completely different direction. You can walk outside your house and see smoke blowing in one direction and, and think, oh, I'm safe. It's, it's burning away from me. And uh, the, the, heat, the, vec- the heat vectors from that fire itself will turn it, and wrap it around and bring it right back around in a circle to you. So it just... You've got to get away and stay away when those type fires are burning. We've had neighborhoods uh, when you when you try to blend the metropolitan areas to the rural areas, and we start building out on the side of mountains or on the side of hillsides, and leave a lot of brush land in between. Uh, we're we're designing a disaster right there. It's just waiting for a time to happen. The other thing that that people need to be aware of and and practice is brush clearing. Uh, A lot of, most of these areas will have a local ordinance that says you have to clear brush for 50 feet. 50 feet doesn't amount to much if the winds are blowing 30 miles an hour. So you, you need to plant the right uh, vegetation around your structure so that it doesn't help uh, the vegetation doesn't help bring it right into the structure there's uh, ways of blocking openings under eaves so that it can't get into the structure real easy uh, but all of these things and, and I would suggest if you're in an area like that that you get a hold of your local fire department because they've got a lot of data that's been put together over the years to help you pick the right plants, uh, pick the right distances, get somebody with some knowledge out there that can tell you, because there's a, a big difference between if you're on a slope and that fire's coming up on the back side of your property versus if you're on flat land. So get a, get a local professional to come out and work with you, do some planning 
And although we think it can't happen to us, it does. And once right. it does, it's too late. So you've got to do that- this in advance. You uh, mentioned that about the vegetation. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with uh, with someone that uh, with state of Tennessee, and of course we know about Gatlinburg and what happened a few months back and the devastation that they've endured and loss of life. And that was something that we talked about is planning of different vegetation. I don't think that a Everyone knows that that's a possibility. And Doug, I, having been with the forestry and fire protection in California, um, I don't know a lot about the difference. I've spent a lot of time in the Smoky Mountains, and so I'm very familiar with like Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge and so forth. Is that the same type of vegetation and, and mountainous area as in your area? Well, we have we have all types of vegetation, any kind you can think of. We've got it from cactus to redwoods. Um, Tom is, is right, and he hit it right on the head about clearances and uh, fire-resistant vegetation. Often people think of ice plant as being fire-resistant because it's so moist, but it has a lot of dead material under it. Others are juniper bushes. People like to plant the junipers around their home. Uh, they'll catch fire and go up like gasoline. So you really need to talk to the professionals. That are, typically, they're called the foresters. And uh, the United States Forest Service, as well as the state uh, foresters, the Associations throughout the country uh, can provide all kinds of material, as Tom was saying. Um, I can re- just recall one fire briefly that came out of the San Bernardino Mountains here in Southern California. The fire was burning downhill faster than uphill. Uh, we have what's called Santa Ana winds here in California, and when the winds blow downhill. So the fires uh, came out of the mountain, the municipal city, and it was uh, basically sidewalks and green lawns and three blocks of homes uh, moving across through the city. So even though they were well landscaped, uh, no brush, no dry grass around their houses, they were just a typical municipal development, and it burned uh, the distance of three blocks down into the city, hundreds of homes destroyed. Wow. So, multi-million dollar losses every time um, and and people don't realize the danger and when the more we move out into the uh, forested areas uh, the, the higher the risk um, also I think there's county agents uh, for people that are in rural counties you can always talk to them about vegetation um, what kind of uh, what kind of fire-resistant vegetation is is there out there for uh, for people to consider planting? Either one of you or both of you. Well, the, the critical part is, at least in California, the laws that cover that say no more than one decorative plant. In other words, not, you don't want a whole group of plants all the same, but no more than one decorative plant uh, and 30 feet around the home to bare mineral soil other than the decorative plants or green grass, uh, up to 100 feet of clearance unless the property is on a hillside or a overlooking a canyon, it may take two or 300 feet of clearance and thinning of the brush uh, so that the fire won't try not to transfer from one bush to another. So, but uh, the nurseries and the foresters are the best ones to give the people advice and brochures on what to put around their homes. Mm-hmm. Tom, have you got, um, is there any particular thing that you see other than what Doug just said about, uh, it, I guess, different areas you use different type of plants? Yeah, I think, I think Doug hit it. You need to get a hold of somebody that understands the plants in your local area. Uh, Donna brought up uh, the mountains down in Tennessee I think a lot of the difference there is our mountains in California, or a good portion of them, are tied in with what we call the high desert area. So we've got really hot temperatures, and then you put a wind behind that and start moving that out out through these areas, and, and there's, again, just no stopping it. And as Doug indicated, uh, we 
what was it, about seven, eight years ago now, those fires down in the San Diego area, uh, they took out just track after track of homes that were built on the outskirts of of the metropolitan area. And once that wind's blowing and that air's hot and the fire brands are moving, it's it's just amazing. You 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 drive into one of these areas afterwards, and it looks like a war zone. You you just can't believe that that fire did it and how fast it happened. Okay, well, you know, I that's exactly right. Now, um, I don't know if you guys in California have as, the same kind of situation that we do, but we do control burning a lot in the Midwest, uh, burn off the uh, the excess. Uh, uh, pastures and stuff like that, uh, and they're control burns. However, uh, and they're intentionally started. And uh, however, the, uh, under the certain conditions, they can get get out of control. I worked a fatality where they they were doing a um, controlled burn, and uh, then uh, it started. Uh, uh, it got into a place they didn't want it to go, and then they're fighting it. They're trying to put it out with a brush truck. And uh, and and they ran into a fence, and what happened was, one they ran it. One guy went on one side of fence, and the other one in the other direction, and the wind changed. And uh, Doug, do you do you have that kind of do you have controlled burning out there too, or or not? Yes, we do. With with several of the federal agencies, our our Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Forest Service, and National Park Service, all involved in in thinning out the heavy brush. Uh, I have my own observation. I, I don't know how reliable it is, but uh, before I retired, I could always tell when the wildland fire season is ready to start because the first control burn of the season got away and burned much more acreage than it was planned on. So I always use that as a, an indicator things are ready to burn. But, yes, we do that. And even some local agencies will uh, that have brush fields uh, within their boundaries will conduct control burns. Yes, uh, you know, and, and there's other there are other things uh, that people don't consider, and that is uh, sometimes people intentionally burn. Uh, well, we had one guy that was burning uh, uh, some debris and some some uh, you know construction debris, and it was it was uh, near some you know dried grass and 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 things, and then it burned across and through a, a fence over to a railroad uh, trestle, and took out a railroad trestle. Now, needless to say, the railroad was a little disturbed about that, and so they kind of wanted their money back. So, so I don't know if if, if you guys have if you ever burned down a railroad. Uh, it's, 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 try not to do that. You know. Yeah, they're not happy. And something you said earlier, Tom, that I I'd like to point out to listeners that occurs in in all fires, but particularly wildland fires, and that is how quick they move. Uh, how they may appear non not so threatening because they're going a different direction or they're you know they're small they appear small radiant heat uh, that is something that is not understood thanks to Hollywood and movies and movies like Backdraft that you know show people running through flames and things like that but radiant heat what is what is the talk a little bit about that with your wildland fires. The fires moved up into the canopy. You'll have radiant heat out several blocks in front of you, drying out the vegetation. So you can have nice green trees and think that, well, you know, they're not going to burn real fast. But the radiant heat, as it moves in, it it turns it from a nice green pine tree to. Uh, a brown tree ready to just burst into flame. In fact, they'll do that. All of a sudden, the flashpoint of that tree is reached, and it'll start off-gassing, and it actually has a miniature explosion as that tree ignites. And it's not like it starts on one edge uh, edge of it and burns into it. It just bursts into flames, and it'll move from tree to tree to tree at a very rapid rate because each one of them is preheating the next one and the next one and the next one. 
And thank so, you for saying that because I want to tell the listeners again, and we haven't talked about this in a few weeks, that when you see fire, what you're seeing burning is is the emission of gases. You're not seeing the actual object. So that that was a very, very good thing that you said there. Yeah, you're, see, you're seeing the flames. The the uh, explosions, I think many people see that in uh, in TV depictions, um, uh, it's it is uh, as it's, as as Donna said, it's not on. It's not like you'll you'll see on TV or or in the movies. Like every every uh, automobile accident, uh, the uh, car bursts into flames. That doesn't happen. But in wildland fires, um, certainly all of that vegetation will go. If it's if it's there and and and, that, and it's on the ground now, of course, in in, in forests, um, depending on the on the uh, on the conservation um, uh, methods, uh, you do have a lot of uh, chaff and and duff, don't you? Yes, Tom? you'll you'll have duff sometimes several inches thick and years old because the the ground cover that's laying on the on the ground in these areas can be something that's gathered for the last 20 years and it goes through season after season and and when we get into fire season remember that the humidity has changed everything's down it's all dried out and when when you get down below 20 25% in humidity, we we look at that as being a high fire uh, zone or area. So you got to be even more careful. And a lot of times in in these areas, you'll get down to where you've got six, seven percent humidity, and just about any heat source in that area from a cigarette to to a spark can ignite those ground fuels and then once they get burning and get a little wind behind them there's just no stopping them right well thank you for for bringing that up because i know we're here at the end of the show and i want to thank both of you guys for being here today i think you've given us a lot of good information um I wanted to, I want to promote uh, I want to thank both of you Tom uh, thank you for being here uh, Doug thank you so much for being here oh, I appreciate the chance to, to be on your show thank you thank you Thomas you're um, welcome Mike okay now to next week we're going to have uh, commercial kitchen fires so you're going to wonder why uh, commercial kitchens burn in those restaurants. Uh, and then don't forget, we have a big we have a big deal coming up in Las Vegas with the on the twelfth, where we're going to be on radio and TV uh, through Voice America on their TV channel. So um, come back next week with Chip Barnhart and Bill Alman, and uh, they'll and we'll be talking about commercial kitchen fires and why Chinese restaurants burn really good. Have a good week. Bye. Have a good week and come back to Speaking of Fire. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week.